With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ranger, nurse, detective, hiker, author. Am I missing anything, Andrea? Uh, outdoor adventurer. Because <laughs> you do have some amazing records that I hope we can get to because obviously I read stuff about you on the internet and everything on the internet is, is true, obviously, but you did some incredible feats. I'm blown away by them. Yeah, I... I- me too. <laughs> I was a lot younger then. <laughs> I appreciate you doing this podcast, and thank you for sending me an early copy of your book. Congratulations on it, Trail of the Lost, The Relentless Search to Bring Home uh, the Missing Hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail. Have you ever seen anyone reading any of your books in public yet? No, I haven't. That's a good question. Would Dang, you, would, I, I would you approach I them? To... No, I think I would give them space. <laughs> really? Yeah, maybe. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> maybe if, if I was on a plane and I already had a, a gin and tonic or two, <laughs> I probably would. <laughs> when did you know Ranger Confidential was a hit? Like, when did you know you had something for that book? Because you've authored a few books. That one really hit. When did you know, like, okay, I got something here? Well, you know, people say that, but it was a more of a slow process. You know, I had trouble selling it, it uh, to an agent and then to a publisher, uh, I just knew it, there was an audience for it while I was writing it because I knew there's people interested in knowing the real story behind the scenery and what it was like to be a park ranger. So there wasn't, I think I know more now because uh, I hear that the sales numbers are good for that book. So it it took a while for me to know that. Were you checking reviews a lot as like a first time author, second time author? Do you check the reviews a lot? I do look at reviews. I think, you know, some authors, it might be too hard for them. But for me, the good a good cr- critical review will help me get be a better writer. You know, if they say, hey, it jumped around too much, for example. So that'll push me to get better at my transitions. So I do look at some critical reviews. But if this kind of um, they're just being uh, nasty, I yeah. don't pay that much attention to it. You got to fill in the blanks for me. You graduated school in Tennessee. Where did it go from? You want to be uh, the Ranger Academy, pursue that line of work, Ranger law enforcement. Where was the fill in the blanks for me there? Yeah, well, I never saw myself going into law enforcement. I okay. was outdoorsy. I wanted to work with animals and work outdoors. And I have a degree in forestry, a bachelor of science degree. But it, back then, in the early 80s, it wasn't easy to get a job. And so I was uh, still bagging groceries at Kroger's. And mm-hmm. my boyfriend said, hey, why don't you go to this Ranger Academy with me? And we'll learn how to handcuff people and pursuit driving. And I said, OK, I didn't have any, anything better to do. And once I went to the Ranger Academy, I was hired a job at seasonal work at Cape Hatteras pretty soon after. And how was it, as a, you, like you said, in the 80s, female rookie ranger, was it difficult? Well, I would say yes and no. It was challenging, you know, at first. If, and I'd never been exposed to law enforcement. Nobody in my family does law enforcement. 
it's always a little nerve wracking at first. And I, I'm the type of person that really wants to do a good job. Uh, but I really got hooked because I started protecting the nest of baby sea turtles. And for me, because you know, I love animals mm -hmm. and they are endangered and threatened. Uh, that raised the stakes for me. I knew this was a job that needed to be done and it needed to be done by people who, uh, you know, gave a, you know what. Um, and so then I was motivated and I loved it. And so I loved being a law enforcement park ranger, at least at first. Yes, because you guys and gals, you wear so many hats. You're doing permits. You're doing trails, search and rescue, guns. You just mentioned animals, patrolling campgrounds. At first, it's like, that's awesome. But you guys are completely overworked, right? Yes. Uh, understaffed and overworked, wearing too many hats. I think one thing you missed in there was a uh, medical response. You know, EMTs, mm -hmm. I was a park medic, which is almost like a paramedic and search and rescue. Of course, all these jobs are dangerous and you're doing all of them, yeah. sometimes all at the same scene. And there was a while there where the statistics were that a park ranger was 12 times more likely to get killed on the job than mm -hmm. was a special agent with the FBI. That's craziness. Uh, when I was a rookie in Times Square, I remember the first week, I'm like, this is amazing. I'm in like the crossroads of the world, the glitz, the glamour, the lights. And then after a week, I'm like, this is my job, whatever. Was that the same for you? Because you were at Yosemite and the Grand Canyon, like, look at your backdrop. Did it get old after a while? Or was it like, okay, I'm going to work here? The backdrop never got old, but the disillusionment like you, because it starts getting tainted, you know, mm -hmm. like your family comes to visit you. And they're oohing and on, and you go, well, that's where I did a body recovery, and that's where they were sexually abusing, you know, the child in the campground. It, it's so it changes how you look at it for sure. Um, it doesn't take too long for that to happen. Because you worked at a few different parks, do you guys request transfers, or is it needs of the department? Because you were like in cool places, and they're far away from each other. You you request transfers and usually to get promoted, you have to move, which is a tough part of the mm -hmm. job. You know, you can't just get a job in New York and stay in New York. You know, if you want to promote, you maybe you have to move your entire family across country um, and live in the middle of nowhere to take a good job uh, to get promotions. But it also allows you to work in a lot of different environments, which I got to do. And that part was great. I loved working it. I worked at Cape Hatteras, Zion National Park, uh, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon. That's awesome. When did you get tired of not the bad stuff you saw, because you saw death and tragedy, but the behind-the-scenes stuff that really led to you leaving the Rangers early? That started before I became a permanent full-time because I oh, was wow. a seasonal for four years and no health insurance, uh, no job security, no pension, and that – you. You know, I started to get concerned, uh, you know, is this going to be steady enough for me? Am I going to be able to make enough money to live? And I started looking at uh, law enforcement agencies, actually. But a good superior found a way to make me permanent full time. And that kind of set me back into loving the job again. Then later, I'm sure, as you know, and your colleagues know, the, the politics and the office games and uh that stuff got old and also being so overworked, uh, working so much overtime, being sleep deprived, things like that got the best of me. Like you said, you were doing search and rescue. Then one day you're doing, uh, I, I saw on your Instagram, the, a gun arrest and a drug arrest. So you're doing so much. And like you said, so short staffed, it must just be wearing everybody, right? Is morale low there? They, they say it's still low, that the Rangers are still overworked, um, still feel unappreciated. 
And in fact, the visitation has gone way up. We thought it was super busy when I was working in mm-hmm. the 90s. And the visitation has gone up even more, but the staffing, especially in law enforcement, has gone down. So I, I feel for the ones that are out there now doing what I used to do decades ago. I want to talk more about your personal life, but I want to talk since we're pretty much best friends now. I got the book Trail of the Lost, The Relentless Search to Bring Home the Missing Hikers of the Pacific Tre- uh, Crest Trail. comes out August 22nd. Do you enjoy the process of writing a book because it's years of your life engrossed into one subject? Do you enjoy that? Yes and no. There's times I love it, uh, trying to bring true stories to life in a way that's easy to read and educates people and also gives them feelings. I love that. But uh, the trying to sell it, you know, and pitch it and get an agent and get a publisher, that part I'm not that fond of. I love having authors on it. And I'm always like, when you hit send for the final draft, do you have like a ritual? And this is like your fourth or fifth book now. So when you hit send, there's no more edits. It's ready to roll. Do you have like a ritual, something you do? No, I, I should go, you know, drink a <laughs> bottle of champagne, but <laughs> then I'm just so relieved. I guess I go for a walk just to burn <laughs> off all that steam. There are, I'm a huge reader. I love doing it. And there are a few books that really uh, like talk to me to the sense where I need to know what happens next. And while I was reading this book, it almost ruined my 4th of July weekend because I'm telling my family, I'm like, it's such a weird story. I'm telling them about the, the hikers, which we're going to talk about. And I needed to get home. So I wanted to leave 4th of July parties early just to come finish your book. That's how I knew this book was like, I was telling my wife, like, this book is awesome. She's like, tell me about it. And I'm telling her. And she's like, I'm like, no, don't look it up. Don't go on YouTube. You have to read this book because you do such a deep dive into it. I loved it so much. Yeah, I I did. And I, and I wanted it to read like how it felt because it, it felt like that. Like, what's going to happen next? And, you know, as we get more in the story and, and working with this eclectic team of people, and we're just constantly texting each other with a new lead or, or just some new crazy thing that happened on the trail. And... And so it felt like the way it reads. I'm glad you mentioned emotional because you wrote this book. And I want to ask you if there's any people like maybe true crime authors that you follow because you wrote the book and you were a part of the book, a very big part of the book. And yet you made sure your emotions were in there. So as a reader, I'm like, oh, my God, she's invested. I'm emotionally invested. So I couldn't even imagine what you guys did. Are there any authors you kind of model yourself after? You know, I, I love literary true crime and and I'm, you know, going all the way back to Truman Capote mm-hmm. uh, in Cold Blood. I actually think if he wrote that book now, he would put himself in the story. And uh, because also that is what the editors and agents want. I'm often they're often oh. pushing me to put myself more in the story because I, I tend to be more fascinated with other people. And as you see, when you read my books, they have other characters that yeah. I'm writing about and I get in their heads and, and try to tell what it's like for them. So I'm often pushed to put me more in the story, but if I'm going to be in the story, it is also about feelings. It's just not about the facts. It's how this stuff affects us, um, how we cope with tragedy and failure and even success and what that means uh, on an emotional level as well as a factual one. Yeah. Emotion was a great thing because it's an emotional roller coaster. What you guys, and we're going to talk about in a second, what you guys go through it, you get a lead and you're excited. Then it, it doesn't happen. And then you get down and depressed. That must be just, you know, just so heavy on you guys to do, isn't it? It was, 
it, it was really hard. Now for us that are trying to help the families of the missing though, it's the hardest for them. Uh, uh, you know, I write about, they call it a hope hangover because these people so badly want answers. You know, what happened to my loved one? Are they alive or are they dead? And they get real invested in a lead. And then if the lead ends up being bogus or you follow it to the end, you know, their hopes go up and then they crash and burn. Uh, so I had to watch these families go through this several times. So, of course, we felt so bad for them. And there are times we we're wondering, are we are we helping or not by uh, helping them follow these leads? It's a very tough situation to be in, to have a loved one who is missing. And the one other thing was like, you would give them hope, not you guys give them hope, a lead would come in on Facebook or something and you'd get excited. And then when nothing happened, now it's just a lull. Now you wait for the next possible lead. And I'm like, oh my God, I was getting like so hurt. I'm like, oh my, and I have no connection. I'm like, oh my God, what these mothers and these parents, oh my, it's a, it's a difficult read. Would you classify this as a true crime book? It is to me, uh, yeah. you know, other people may not see it that way, but uh, you know, true crime is about what law enforcement mm -hmm. does as part of true crime. And law enforcement has to investigate missing person cases. And if you're a park ranger, you often have to investigate missing hiker cases. Until you find a body, foul play is always a, a specter out there. Were they a victim of foul play? One thing I like to say about a missing hiker case for the investigator is you have a lot of suspects and not all of them are human. I cannot wait to get to that. This is why this book can be a movie. So we will not play spoiler alert. How about we talk about each hiker and kind of their uh, the circumstances why they went missing? Is that cool? Yes. Okay. So, uh, Crit, you want you want to start it off with Chris Sylvia? Yeah. Chris Silvio was the case that got me involved. He was 28 years old, originally from Maryland, back more close to your neck of the woods. And he had recently moved to California and he was going through some um, personal problems. He didn't have a job and his roommate talked him into hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And this was February 2015. And about four days into his hike, he called to be taken off by his friend. But his friend came out to pick him up. And Chris isn't there. Uh, later, hikers found his gear on the trail. And that's uh, where I came came in two years later to investigate the case. He, there was a big search for him, uh, 50 searchers, dogs, aircraft, everything. But he was never been found. You were emotionally invested into that case because it was one of your older cases. Kind of a kind of, uh, you know, hit, hit home, didn't it? Yes. In 1995, I worked a search operation chief for a case of a 20-year-old missing young man, also was out of work, um, living in a friend's apartment, and he disappeared in the Grand Canyon, and I failed to find him. And that haunted me uh, for decades. And so when I saw Chris Sylvia's case, it reminded me so much of that earlier case. I think that played a big role in me calling Chris Sylvia's family and asking for their blessing to uh, do a pro, no, pro bono investigation into Sylvia's disappearance. So you're into this case. And this one for me is like one of the most frustrating ones because he told his friend, hey, pick me up at this location. He's not there. And listen, everyone goes to pick up a friend. If they're not there, you get pissed off. Like, F this, I'm out. And you leave. And then he's missing. And then they find his stuff laid out. This one left so many questions. As we're doing this, I'm making little notes. I'm like, okay, obviously he did this. And like, there's so many different possibilities where he left off, I know there was helicopters and dogs. Wasn't it very uh, like a flat area that he should have been found if he was there? Like it wasn't a lot of uh, hills or is that, is, am I wrong? 
it was an arid ridge with low level brush. So if you just kind of got to a high spot, you could see where roads were, trail trails are at. And, and e there's even a, a hostel there that I write about, Mike's mm -hmm. Place, which has kind of a interesting background. And so it's not a place where an adult's going to get lost. Um, you know, you'd be able to see your landmarks and get found. And the fact that his gear was found on the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, made me feel I could solve this case. Yeah. I always came in it kind of confident. Like, I'm, I'm going to bang this they, out they quick. Something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I learned the hard way that that wasn't the case. Um, so that, yeah, that case is frustrating. And they all are. But this one is uh, has a lot of different possibilities. And one of the possibilities was that maybe he was still alive and he voluntarily disappeared. And, and in the book, uh, you know, we don't want to spoil no. it too much. There are some things that happen that lead you to think that that is definitely a possibility with the Chris Sylvia case. And then you fast forward a little bit and it's Sherpa, Chris Fowler, his mom. Like I was getting so emotional into this one. He was a very experienced hiker and he was so close to finishing what it's over 2600 miles. Yes, he 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 had gone all the way from Mexico. He's all getting close to the Canadian border and he has a little bit of what they call border fever. Mm -hmm. You know, you've come that far and you know, by God, I'm going to make it. And there was a storm coming. And uh, Chris Sherpa Fowler, he was 34, very experienced, uh just a real likable, attractive guy. And he went missing in October of 2016. His mother is a major character in the story, Sally Fowler. And her uh, father was law enforcement officer. And although that's not her um, line of work, you could tell that that investigative gene had passed on mm -hmm. to Sally. And so she did an excellent investigation of her own into her son's disappearance. And I share her story in Trail of the Lost. His story is frustrating because there were possible lies about sightings with him and people who were adamant about sightings and all the sightings couldn't line up time-wise. So it was like, if this person's telling the truth, then he was here, he was here, the bartender, there was a lot of sightings. And that is the whole roller coaster you're talking about, correct? Yeah. I, I, I bet you and your colleagues experienced this, you know, eyewitnesses statements, oh. they're such a funny thing. And they go from, you know what, they're making this up to get attention mm -hmm. to whoa, I cannot let this sighting go. I, I, you know, maybe that was him. And if that was him, WTF, right? Where the heck is he? So uh, these sightings are very challenging to deal with. And uh, they're so far apart, some of the sightings. So it's not like, hey, we saw him in Brooklyn. Let's focus on Brooklyn. These are maybe sometimes they're states apart, correct? Yes, uh, maybe even countries apart, yeah. you know, so sometimes there's uh, sightings in Canada or something. Um, but with Chris Fowler, yeah, hundreds of miles apart with uh, varying, you know, like if he's seen on the trail, that has different implications. than if someone saw him in a bar somewhere mm -hmm. or getting on a bus somewhere. And so your search area is so complicated and huge. It's extremely challenging challenging for a search investigator to try to decide where exactly to search for someone like Chris Fowler. And then there's David O'Sullivan who came from Ireland, who wasn't the most experienced hiker, but like you had to love him because he he read the book wild. I bet you probably hate this book wild because there's so many people that have to go, go do their thing, but he did like so much research on it. And then he ate, emailed his mom from the library, walks across a trail and that's it. He's never seen from again. 
Yeah, David Sullivan's 25 from Ireland, like really a cool dude, a disciplined dude. He had a black belt in karate, but he was new at hiking and backpacking. And he, he, uh, you know, he was uh, reading a book after dark that has a characters that disappear. It's a novel fiction that characters that disappear in the book. And uh, sure enough, he ends up uh, vanishing there in Southern California near the San Jacinto Mountains. And he, there are lots of sightings of him too that really confuse the investigation. Um, he's also an area where there are marijuana groves and mountain lions, um, but also icy slopes. There's also a cult in the area near where both David O'Sullivan and Chris Sylvia disappeared. And I go into all these theories in the book. When you're doing the Chris, you know, you're doing everything with Chris. When did you think, okay, I'm going to help out? All three parties, we're going to put these together, and I want to start documenting this. Not initially, obviously not. When did you know, like, I'm going to do a book on these three? What really jumped me into that is the Facebook missing hiker groups. They're a whole strange phenomenon. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like the wild, wild west. You know, you got catfishers, wannabes, womansplainers, mansplainers, you know, and then every once in a while, in this Wild Wild West saloon on Facebook, a quiet hero walks in who has pure intentions and keen instincts. And one of these people was a woman I met named Kathy Tarr. She's an amateur. She has no experience in search and rescue or law enforcement. But she had taken it upon herself to help these families find Chris Fowler and David O'Sullivan. So I met with her. And once I heard her story, I went, whoa, this is a book uh, about this whole phenomenon of amateurs filling in a hole because once the officials drop the case you don't even know if they're responding to leads or not so these uh amateurs i'll call them a lot of them come with good skills but they come in to help the family and i just thought it was amazing how dedicated they were and then she introduced me to sally fowler and I, i just started to document and take recorded interviews of their experiences from there you're law, you're law enforcement, and the web sleuths, the amateur armchair detectives, they get a bad rap. And I don't even want to call any of these people armchair detectives because they were out there doing all the grunt work. Um, when you joined them, did you have some apprehension? Like, okay, I'm dealing with these people who are amateurs. They're not really sure what, they, what they're doing. Obviously, that changed quickly. Did you ever have any, like, uh, hesitancy about doing it with them? I, I, you know, I didn't because okay. I think a couple of reasons. One is – I trusted my instincts. Uh, I really felt that Kathy Tarr was an honorable person. And then I started working with someone named Morgan Clements, who is a, he maps terrorist activity. And sometimes he's contracted by the government to do this. And then Sally Fowler, who was, you know, very motivated to search for her son. And I had worked with volunteers before. And I write about this in Ranger Confidential, uh, where I learned that using volunteers to help give out information on the trail can save lives, you know, in a dangerous trail like Grand Canyon. So I think I came into it with a positive feeling about uh, amateur detectives, we'll call them that. Um, also, can t- I can be jaded. I can be a little bit jaded about the authorities uh, sometimes, Mike. How, <laughs> how contagious is their energy? Like the volunteers, and you know, the we're going to call them amateur detectives, even though they better than most detectives I know. The, the work they did. How contagious is their energy? Like, hey, we're going to go out there. We're doing this. We're going to hike in the snow, in the rain. We're not stopping. Like I was, like I want to go help. They really pump you up, right? Yes, they do. 
they're they're they do come into it like I said I'm jaded they come into it with a little more idealism than me and that can be fueling though that can fuel the crust idealists like somebody like me and I'm like they're gung-ho and that does give me a little energy to to help and participate with them being on both sides now what do you think the um the disconnect is with the amateur detectives and law enforcement the goal should always be the same let's find in this case the missing hiker the missing hikers why is there disconnect why is there seem to be dissension I think it's a trust issue. I, I think law enforcement understandably has uh, needs to keep certain aspects of their, their investigation protected. Um, there's also a safety concern. You know, I, understandably, law enforcement is worried about the safety of these uh, volunteer searchers going out there. Um, but I think going forward, there's just enough evidence that these uh, civilians can help an investigation that I feel, my opinion, is that law enforcement should learn how to work with non-government entities, uh, to be open to working with non-government entities, uh, to collaborate in uh, solving cases. Especially like this hiker case, I know nothing about it. I've hiked only on vacation, like I emailed you, like Machu Picchu, like, you know, the tourist hiking, okay? Law enforcement in that area probably don't have to know about the underbelly of hiking. So why not bringing people who are experienced with it, who know what the hell they're talking about? Don't you agree? Uh, yeah, 100 uh, percent. For example, you know, I talk about in the book the items that were found with Chris Sylvia's backpack. Law enforcement should have talked to an expert hiker to help them interpret uh, what that means, what you know, what was found and what that might mean. And just like you might hire an FBI forensic expert for something, well, if it involves hiking, maybe you should find a hiker that you trust to help you with your investigation. Because we, you know, if you're not a hiker, you don't know how what this stuff means. They were all around a year apart, all male, all white dudes. Any other patterns with them that you noticed? Uh, they were all unmarried. They were all, you know, I reveal in the book, they were all carrying a book that had themes of disappearing. Um, they were all fit and healthy, but so they did have some similarities. Yeah. What hurdles did you guys face? Jurisdiction is a huge one, correct? With the missing thing. I'm not taking the report. It's on this one. Is that a big thing, the jurisdiction? Because um, you don't know exactly where they went missing? Yeah, it's huge, especially on the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, because it's not like if you go missing Grand Canyon National Park, you know, the rangers are going to do it. It's mm -hmm. cut and dry. On the Pacific Crest Trail, you have three states. I don't know how many counties could be 20, you know, more counties in three countries. You have Mexico and Canada are part of it. So there's a lot of jurisdictions there. You also have federal jurisdictions with national parks and the United States Forest Service. And then you have county jurisdictions. So it does create an environment where it's kind of easy to kind of take the case as a hot potato. Yes. Oh, he didn't go missing in my place. Well, he went missing in your county. No, he didn't go missing in my county. And that happened uh, with David Sullivan's case mm -hmm. and also with Chris Fowler's case. Very frustrating for the family members because they're trying to get at least one officer to take this case serious and file a report. I'm glad you said serious because you expressed frustration with uh, various law enforcement agencies. Do they not take missing hiking uh, cases serious or does it happen a lot like, oh, this one's missing. Oh, don't worry about it. He'll he'll show up because it seemed like sometimes they didn't really take it that serious. 
Yeah, sometimes they don't. Uh, and, and it's disturbing. Uh, yeah. There's uh, several cases uh, that I talk about in the book, but other times they do. Uh, it's sometimes it's just that initial response. Uh, with Chris Fowler's case, once Sally convinced uh, Yakima County Officer uh, Sergeant Briscoe to take the case, I mean, they went all out. They, up yeah. there in Washington, it was one of the biggest, uh, if, it might still be one of the biggest searches for a missing hiker they've ever done. Um, so it depends, but uh, a lot of leads are dropped and, you know, there, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there was one lead, uh, an item that I mm -hmm. found that was missed by those 50 searchers down there in Southern California and they were right next to it. Oh. You know, they were within uh, yards of it for sure. And they missed this very important clue. So things are missed. I mean, I'm sure I missed something too on some mm -hmm. of the searches I worked. It, it's very challenging to work these cases. Another another hurdle that was good and bad, uh, the good was the Brazilian man. We'll leave it at that. The bad can be social media, the Facebook groups. You go down the deep dive on Reddit. Everyone's an expert. Everyone can solve the case watching a six-minute YouTube video. Okay, by the way, this is what happened. Suicide, kidnapping, started alone. How's social media? The good and the bad, right? Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Because to some of it is just uh, crazy, you know, and then there's the hecklers, you know, oh. Sally Fowler got heckled, uh, you know, poor David O'Sullivan's mother at Carmel. She was crying in her kitchen because there's Facebook hecklers. No matter what she did, it was it was wrong. If she was really uh, aggressive and trying to track down David, they said she was an overbearing mother. If yeah. she w pulled back and waited to see if, you know, he would uh, contact them. She wasn't working hard enough to find her son. So these Facebook hecklers and people trying to take it, man, they're trying to hijack a tragedy mm -hmm. for their own agendas. What oh, they're doing. yeah. And they are out there. And but in my book, we're going to talk about some some really solid heroes like Kathy Tarr, Morgan Clements, uh, who jump in there and truly try to help these families. Yeah, you guys were a group of heroes that just found each other. And you guys all probably go in there with a different theory. Like, hey, I think this happened to Sherpa, this happened to, you know, Chris, this one happened to David. Is it difficult to either try to convince each other like, hey, no, 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 I'm pretty sure this is what happened. Cause you guys are all, you guys know your stuff. And it might be five or six of you guys in a room, in a war room with different theories. Is it hard to like, even try to like, okay, I guess you might be right on that. Or is there a lot of disagreement in there? I think with theories, there's enough respect uh, between the individuals that uh, we sort of, well, okay. You know, so I think it was more of a collaborative uh, environment. Now, where there were some arguments, uh, there's a technique using drones oh. where the drone does a grid search and it mm -hmm. takes, it's, it's, it, you can't just send any drone guy to do this. It's a very uh, involved technique. And the drone takes picture, you know, does a lawnmower grid and takes pictures at their computer screen so much, searching those images for clues. Now, sometimes somebody would find what looked to me like a rock with the shade and they would insist it was a tent. And mm -hmm. then the group would get in and argue a little bit about, you know, is this a rock or a tent? So that did sometimes cause some heated discussions. But in the end, we all worked together and, you know, I, I don't want to spoil things too much, but that technique, some very interesting and positive outcomes came from that technique. I don't want to play spoil, but I'm going to be a little fanboy here now and ask you one question that is kind of always on Reddit, always on the other sites. Do you think Chris's gear was staged? 
I, it was, it, people say that, no, it depends on what you mean by staged. I think it was laid out with intent of some okay. kind is how I would word that. And so staged to me would mean somebody other than Chris Sylvia laid it out. Um, and this is a spoiler. So people want to skip over because I found another item of his, mm -hmm. a book in another location nearby. I, I'm curious what you think, Mike. That makes me think Chris was the one that laid out the gear and he was leaving things in different locations. But honestly, I'm really curious to see what other people think, including you. So, okay, we'll do it like that without playing spoiler because uh, the mm -hmm. Chris one, I went back and forth. At first, it was suicide originally. Mm -hmm. But then the more I thought of it and I tried to like really think, okay, you're going to call your friend down. And I'm like, oh, maybe he called his friend down to unfortunately find his body. Like, hey, I'm going to be at this location. Mm -hmm. Here's my body. There was no body. There was no note. It just seemed like a weird way to do it. And laying out the stuff, if he would have laid out his own stuff and wouldn't he have left a note there or something, that's what always confused me. I'm like, I feel like he did, he went on his own. That's how I feel. And I hate that answer because it's very New York centric. Like, how do you not find someone? It's impossible to go missing. You know, that's, I'm yes. so New York centric. But when um, the clues with that one was weird. Like, why didn't he leave a note? If he wanted his friend to find him, he would have been found in that area. So where would he have gone? So the Chris one, I kind of think he might have did that on his own. I, I think it's a possibility. Uh, like I said, another spoiler is he had disappeared before mm -hmm. for a while, or at least was reported missing before in Costa Rica and uh, for three weeks or more. So this was someone who was willing to go off grid and live off the land. He hated computers. He hated smartphones. Um, and then you talked about the man in Brazil. There's a case that's going to be uh, in the book where a, uh, a mentally ill individual was able to get all the way from Canada to Brazil without any money or any passport. <laughs> so if that guy could do it, maybe Chris Sylvia could do it. The Sherpa one Originally, I'm like, okay, this guy, we all push our bodies through crazy things, marathons, and you would all the things you did. When you're so close to the end, I'm like, I don't care if it's going to rain. I don't care if it's it's 110 degrees. I'm going running. I'm doing this. So I get like, you see the finish line. You're going to go. Then I'm like, okay, but the there was a storm coming. But then the sightings, the one bartender, and then, like, and then the bear hunter, I'm like, uh, like, they really, and that's why I was like, oh my God, you picked like the most perfect book, which is a weird way to say it because- the sightings bothered me the most on that one. At first, I'm like, okay, it's the storm. He he didn't stop. He had to keep going. He you know he's a he's a monster. He's gonna finish that finish line. And then the sightings and people are like, no, I'm adamant, and I'm not trying to be a social media star. I'm telling you, I I know it was him. Isn't that that one was weird too, right? Yeah, Mike. It's it's it validates me to hear you say that because I have a very similar response. At first, I'm like, yeah, the storm got him. I'm a park ranger. I've seen it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, dozens of times. But those sightings, uh, that one, the bartender sighting, yes. which you'll read more about in the book, it is haunting. She's extremely credible. And if he was there, like I said, he could be anywhere and anything could have happened to him. And um, so, yeah, the Chris Fowler case is unsettling. And, of course, that's very hard on his mother, Sally Fowler. Um, and then the there. The David O'Sullivan case, you know, there are also some haunting sightings of 
with his, but with him, it does seem more like probably that was a weather, you know, he ran into some bad weather. He was getting ready to hike into extremely treacherous, Mm -hmm. notoriously, um, a killer mountain, the San Jacinto mountains. So that's the David O'Sullivan case. The one question I have with the David O'Sullivan is his two friends, uh, allegedly called the park rangers and they're like, we're not a babysitting company. That always like left me a little weird. Like, does that really happen? Like I can, I can't picture someone calling the NYPD and being like, we're not a babysitter. Cause we have to take every report for everything. Does that really happen out there? Uh, well, that was the Pacific Crest Trail Association. They're not a law enforcement agency. Oh, They're a okay, nonprofit. Okay. Yeah. And at least that is the memory of Carmela Sullivan, that she had mm-hmm. called them for help. And, you know, they don't know how to handle a missing person case. Uh, you know, they should have told her, call the county, you know, call this county. They should have helped her that way. But uh, I think also what happens is these, so let's see, there's, you know, hundreds uh, a week of pe- people being overdue hiker mm-hmm. uh, and 97% of them or more are solved within 24 hours. And the most of them, the person's fine. They're found alive. And sometimes it's even a miscommunication problem. And so that's what agencies are used to, you know, this is, they're going to be found here in an hour, you know, so I'm not going to get all involved, mm-hmm. but uh, you have to treat every missing hiker overdue hiker as an emergency. That's how park rangers are trained to treat it as an emergency because Possibly that person, you know, has a broken leg or a head injury and they need help now. Um, but th- there is a tendency to kind of, well, let's see if this solves itself, resolves itself on its own. Writing this book, obviously these uh, hikers are still missing. Was it difficult for you to like, it's an unsolved mystery. Is it difficult for you to be like, okay, I'm ready. Or should I wait another week, another month? Maybe we'll find one. Is that like, do you, did you like um, fight yourself with that? Wrestle yourself with that with that one? Yeah, still to today, I have got to a point where I, if I've worked hard enough on a case, I can wait until there's another lead. You know, I could feel like I've exhausted what I could do, or I could even suggest someone else do. And so it's just a matter of waiting for another lead. Often these cases are solved by accident. Somebody just stumbles upon a mushroom hunter or a deer hunter stumbles upon some remains and, and then the case is closed. Uh, but but that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean you're not still thinking about it, you know, all the time. Was it difficult to write a book about you and the group of detectives and the three missing hikers? Like you had four parts that you had to like, you kind of did equally 25% each. Was it hard to juggle all that? I was like, as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my God, people aren't going to realize how much work went to this book that you're focusing on the detectives, you know, you guys and gals searching for them. And then about Chris and Sherpa and David, like I want to give all them equal timing. Was that hard to juggle all that together? Yeah. Yeah. You're very astute reader because (laughs) yes, it's extremely difficult, but I still wanted to do it. I wanted to involve all the cases. I wanted to talk about a lot of these issues. I wanted to uh, explore emotional uh, impacts. Uh, So yeah, weaving all that together wasn't easy. I got to hand it a little bit to my editor, uh, Carrie over at Hachette. She helped uh, me make some really good transitions to ease the reader's experience through all that. But it's a bear of a book, no doubt. When uh, there's been 16, I believe you said, missing hikers on the PCT, correct? And they've all been found or like 16 is one who's passed away, correct? And everyone has been found except these three, right? Yeah, there's uh, 16 deaths on the Pacific Crest Trail that are, uh, I wouldn't say natural, accidental, Mm -hmm. accidental deaths. 
There is one murder on Appalachia, on the Pacific Crest Trail uh, in 1989, and it's still unsolved, but he was not a through hiker. He was a trail runner. And the theory is that he had uh, come upon some people breaking into his car at the trailhead and had got in some sort of altercation with them and they had beaten him to death. Sad case. He, Andy Elam was his name. He's only 19 years old. Um, that unsolved uh, murder on the Pacific Crest Trail is not one that people know about. You won't read much about it online. You were in talks and helped out on a show uh, about missing hikers. You were about to do a show, and then I guess it faded out. With this book coming out, do you think that's going to be renewed interest, or are you going to have something going where you're going to do another show about hopefully missing hikers? Uh, well, I can say that there is definitely interest. I could say that. Yeah, so maybe. <laughs> How can the reader or listener uh, help? I know there's the fanta fantastic Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation. Is that the best way to help out, like with anything with this, with the missing hikers? Yeah, yeah, especially on the West Coast. So the Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation, uh, you know, you can donate, you can volunteer. There are also uh, organizations, you know, in Texas, uh, other, uh, you know, you can donate to your local SAR team. You can also join if you see a missing persons Facebook group in your community, you can join that and help uh, spread awareness of the case to help bring in leads. Um, you know, there the the drone operations could really use some donations to help pay for equipment. So there's a lot of way to help. So one way I'd start is go to the Fowler Sullivan Foundation. What needs to be done to improve search conditions or the search and rescue for hikers from law enforcement's uh, aspect and park rangers? What, what do they need to do better? They do need to make sure that whoever's responsible to initiating uh, or managing a search for an agency has attended the courses like managing the search function. So they understand there's search. There's a whole esoteric uh, protocol and strategy in how you manage a search and, and investigators play a role and managers and planners play a role. So they should be trained in that. So that's number one. Two, I do think they, when someone is reported missing, of course it might be resolved right away, but take it seriously. Um, help the family find out where the, the, if it's not your jurisdiction, help the family get yeah. to whose jurisdiction it is. I mean, hello, right. You know, don't just blow it off. Uh, one trend we see it seems like when it's a young male that goes missing the law enforcement officer tends to think he um, right away they think he's uh missing on purpose um uh, even if the family is telling him no no he would never do this uh so watch out for your biases i also think involving the family uh, safely and uh within reason is therapeutic for them because they are they feel out of control this and it's very tragic and so just involving them a little bit helps give them some agency over this horrible thing that's happening to them i'm completely guessing this do less people go missing now because of gps smartphones and stuff like that or am i completely off base now in general, missing, I couldn't answer that question for you. But no, I mean, on the miss, hiking trails. Yeah, missing hikers. Interestingly enough, we don't know for sure because no one is doing a good job of tracking the statistics, especially the federal government. So mm -hmm. we don't know. Yeah. But anecdotally, I worried that maybe more people are going missing because there's more people out there doing this activity and they're maybe overly relying on their cell phone. 
Now, if they start, uh, you know, there's going to Apple now with a new phone, I think has a GPS locator on it. And then there are the emergency GPS locator devices that you can purchase. They're pretty expensive. Hopefully that if as soon as more people have these things, there will be more cases will be solved. At least they still we still may have people going out there and getting in trouble and dying and getting hurt. But more of these cases will be solved. Writing this book, what was the one thing? Was it the cult? Was it uh, Mike split the hostel? What thing surprised you the most that you had no idea was going on on these trails? You know, I think it was the cult because I'm like, really? You know, because, if, you know, people say, oh, yeah, maybe you joined a cult, you know, and you're laughing about it. Yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. It's, you completely write it <laughs> off. Like, I'm sure they joined. The, and then you read like, oh, well, God, the, the deli. <laughs> Yeah. And then what I learned about the cold, I even called experts and tried to see if they, you know, I was hoping, yeah, no, he didn't do it. You know, but they said, no, uh, this is a possibility. Uh, So yeah, the cold called the 12 tribes and you learn a lot more about them in Trail of the Lost. And their recruitment pool is hikers. They're looking for hikers to bring into the cold. But so, yeah, that was the most uh, surprising one for sure. Do you hate the movie and the book Wild because of all people who go there because of this? You know, I don't. I, <laughs> I read Wild. I, I love Wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, I But the reality is it did affect through hiker culture. It attracted a different type of hiker. Um, like one quote I have in the book from another veteran through hiker. He said it used to be only hikers on the trail. Now it's all of humanity. Yeah. And so uh, some people I'm not irked by it mm-hmm. because also I think Instagram and Facebook are equally guilty or yes, culpable yes. of bringing people to the trail that that maybe uh, aren't prepared as well as they should be. Um, but no, I don't. I like wild. I'm a you- fan. You pushed your body. You hiked over two thousand miles on the trail. You, I'm reading now, cycled from Fairbanks to the Ar- the Arctic Ocean. First female to bike the eight hundred mile Arizona Trail. Where does this come from to push your body to these extremes? Uh, yeah, that's a, a good question. I think it's a young person's disease, and I just, uh, you know, as a ranger, I had a lot of confidence. You know, I knew I could get out there and, and do this stuff. And with the Arizona Trail. Uh, Beth Overton and I were the first people to through bike the Arizona trail. And um, uh, that's probably the favorite, my favorite adventure that I did. Um, It's something that I'll never forget. And it's just to immerse myself in nature made the labor worth it. Are there any hikes anywhere in the world that you like, I want to do that. I need to do that, but I haven't done it yet. Oh yeah, the, the one in Switzerland and uh, uh, the Tour de Mont Blanc. Okay, okay. I would like to do that. I've done the Milford Track in New Zealand. I'd love to do that again because mm-hmm. uh, that is awesome. I've been told by uh, the Australians that there's some great. They call them bushwalks. We call yeah. them through hikes. There's great bushwalks in Tasmania. So yeah, I would like to go there and maybe maybe something in uh, Patagonia in either Chile or Argentina. Which is supposed to be just absolutely breathtaking. Yes. One last question for you. On your Instagram, at Haunted Hiker, which you need to be more active on, by the way. Uh, in 1993, is a photo of you with guns and drugs from a car stop. Uh, just all guns. Do you remember that that case, that job? Because you were young. You were kind of still a rookie, right? Or no? Yeah. Yeah, maybe a semi-rookie. Um, I 
I think what's the, the great story about that is because when I got hired at Yosemite Valley in Yosemite National Park, you know, it had a raucous reputation. It's one of the busiest law enforcement districts in the National Park Service. And I was told time and time again that it was hard on women, um, that the guys were all sexist and stuff like that. So I got in there, you know, chip on my shoulder. I got to prove yeah. myself. So that was my first night when they let me loose to patrol on my own. Oh, no and, way. Yeah. So I caught that uh, dude. Man, he had a lot of guns. I, yeah. I forget all the guns, but you see in the picture, there's a lot of ammo, a lot of guns. And you're not even supposed to be bringing those guns into a national park. And um, so I know I impressed the guys when I made that case. And you'll, you'll see there's a Ranger Jeff Totten is in that photo with me. And he he was definitely impressed. They started calling me the bulldog. No, Really? Mm-hmm. What made you initiate that car stop? Lord, I wish I could remember, Mike. It was just probably some little thing, you know, but instinctual, you know, type of stuff. But I'm, I know he violated something. That was why I just pulled him over. But I don't remember those details. Andrea Langford, this was a blast. I truly love the book. I was once I, once I got it, I couldn't put it down. Um, I love the interview. I hope you come to New York because we can talk more about the things you did. We can sh- talk more about the book over some beers. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful. I can't wait. Can you just plug your Instagram, Twitter, and the book? Because it comes out August 22nd, and I'll obviously release this as we get closer to that date. But just plug everything else. Yeah, you know, my my website, andrealangford.com, that you can link to my Twitter and my Facebook and my Instagram there. Another good site to follow, especially if you're interested in these cases or other missing hiking hiker cases, is Missing from the Pacific Crest Trail on Facebook. There's a, a more activity there and uh, items of interest to you if you're interested in that stuff. Andrew, this was a blast. Thank you so much for doing this, and we'll chat soon, my friend. Yeah, thank you too, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.